Maggie, I am so excited for this episode. Thank you again for coming on. This is going to be a really cool conversation. I really can't wait for all of our corporate real estate insider listeners to be able to check this out and learn from a true expert at all things corporate real estate. Uh, before we jump in here, uh, first, some quick background. Maggie Hatfield Harley leads global real estate for Halliburton as the company's vice president of real estate services. Maggie is responsible for all things real estate, strategy, portfolio and facility management, deal execution, design, construction, long-term planning, and more, making the whole real estate department work alongside her team. Um, as we'll be talking about shortly, Halliburton has a massive portfolio, a very diverse corporate real estate, all different types of uh, product type, uh, which includes 600 sites in 90 countries. Uh, safe to say that Maggie has among the most challenging and complicated real estate portfolios to oversee that anyone could possibly have. Uh, and today she's very graciously giving us an insider look into how our team works, what our process is, and how others can optimize the management of their own real estate portfolio. Uh, Maggie, thank you again for being here. Uh, I'm super excited to dive in. Thanks, Tucker. It's a pleasure to be here and a, a privilege. Thanks. Yeah, the, the listeners of the pod are going to be very excited for this one. I can guarantee that. Uh, well, jumping right in here, um, starting off, just to give some context for the conversation, can you give us a little background on Halliburton's portfolio of real estate? You know, tell us about the different types of real estate um, that the company utilizes, uh, you know, some high level info around the countries that you're in and what the U.S. portfolio looks like. Uh, where is it now? Where is it going in the future? Love to just kind of frame the conversation so everyone understands the, uh, the challenges that uh, you deal with managing Halliburton's real estate. No, appreciate it. Um, so like you mentioned, we have about 600 um, facilities worldwide. That's actually half of what our portfolio has been at its highest point. Um, so I'll look back to early 2014 when we had over 1,200 properties around the globe. So now half of that, uh, still a big portfolio. It's about um, 30 million square feet. Uh, 1.8 million of that is under office, and the rest of it is what I would call light industrial, manufacturing technology, warehousing, um, and that's roofline that we're talking about. Uh, the U.S. portfolio is obviously the largest. It's probably about 30-ish um, percent of the total, uh, about 165 sites. But we are in, like you mentioned, 90 countries. I mean, my last visit to the Middle East uh, was Kuwait, Saudi, Qatar, Dubai, Oman. Um, we are in China. We are in Singapore. We are um, in uh, all the European countries. Uh, obviously, we've got offices in Aberdeen, in London, uh, in Australia, Asia-Pac, uh, Malaysia, uh, all of Latin America, we're in every country in Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Mexico, um, and then, of course, U.S., Canada as well. So a huge portfolio um, led by a multidiscipline team, of course. So just to kind of give you a little background on that, my team consists of about nine direct reports. We have, uh, I have four regional managers, so what we consider Europe, Eurasia. Uh, Sub-Sahara Africa is all one region, uh, Middle East, North Africa, and Asia-Pac is separate region, and then uh, Latin America by itself, and then Canada and the U.S. as our North America region. 
And then supporting that, I've got two directors that kind of we do a geography kind of split from a, we have process owners and my two directors own the processes and that would be the entire life cycle you mentioned, right? So from acquisition, design, construction, lease management, facility management, disposal. And um, in, that, in that arena as well, that's kind of split up between the two directors. And then I've got a service quality manager who supports uh, both um, as a company service quality and HSC, and then a finance and accounting manager that's directly responsible for us for the globe. And then believe it or not, travel services falls with under uh, real estate in Halliburton. So that's another little uh, side note, but part of the uh, big picture that we're responsible for. Hopefully that gives you something. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a very comprehensive uh, and interesting uh, description and you know throw travel services in there just in case everyone's lives uh, weren't already uh, you know complicated enough but yeah thanks thanks for the background so I I'd love to dive in a little bit and you hinted at this uh, in your description of of the team what what is the process like for Halliburton when you think about working on a project right from the earliest stage right demand forecasting or the initial research. Um, you talked a little bit about your internal team's composition and some of the people that are handling those different activities. But, you know, there's obviously different types of transactions. You know, hey, this facility is coming up for renewal. I uh, would love to hear about what that pathway looks like for you. And then separately, uh, I'm sure there are instances where, hey, we need to open a new facility to support, you know, this partner. How do, How does that work? How do you figure out uh, what you actually need. Um, and I guess some background before you jump in, in all of our conversations with people like you that are leading real estate teams, most of them tell us that the most challenging part of their job is actually figuring out what the real estate strategy should be and why, right? Where's the facility? How big is the facility? How does that facility support the team optimally? The actual execution of the real estate itself uh, oftentimes is is uh, not the most complicated part. And of course, there are instances, particularly with businesses like Halliburton and other companies in energy or defense and you know other highly regulated, complicated industries where uh, executing on a real estate project can, in fact, be really, really difficult. But normally, that initial part of figuring out the project itself is most challenging. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, too. So in addressing that, let me tell you a little bit of background, right? Because I think as an organization, I've been with Halliburton now for 22 years, uh, all of it within real estate, believe it or not. And so if I think about an analogy of where we've come from, it used to be, hey, when in the heck are we going to get a seat at the table? And now I have to say that it's, it's kind of funny, the gears have really changed. Um, and if I use that kind of analogy of a seat at the table, now it's people are waiting for us to sit down and talk about the menu before they move on. So that's really exciting. So what does that really mean for us is that we are embedded with the business. So those regional managers that I mentioned that cover um, the four different areas are embedded in the leadership team. And then below that, although we have a pretty small team compared to the company and our number of sites. So my entire real estate employee base is about 300 employees and that's at every level. So obviously with 300 employees and some of those sites, um, those are mail services folks or somebody delivering true facility support. 
that means that really about 200 of those people are actually doing strategic level thinking. So they're assigned either at the site level, the country level, but they are part of their leadership team, whether that's site leadership, country leadership, region leadership. And that is the critical point of understanding what the strategy is, because they don't look at um, new openings without us knowing that we're pursuing an opportunity in a new, uh, a new country or for a new product line. But it does, and we also have um, full visibility through our tools and our databases on critical dating. So everything we have is in uh, SAP Real Estate Module. We've been on that for about 20 years. And in that, we have what's called case management. So when you talk about a lease renewal, we're looking at critical date things a year in advance, right? Because deals take a long time to, to renew or to decide, um, are we renewing? Are we going to go look for a different site? Um, are, are we at the right location? Uh, do we own this? Do we need to expand? So that's an ongoing conversation um, that we're constantly having with the leadership team, whether it's at the site level, the country level, or the region level. So uh, knowing the strategy is actually kind of like I said, that that's what they do every day, right? And we have these fundamental um, databases and cool dashboards nowadays that, you know, I'm looking at one actually right in front of me that has the globe on it and all these little dots. And so if you told me, you know, what country you want to look at, I'd be like, okay, well, we've got five sites in this area and they're about this much square feet. And uh, these are the PSLs that are there today. This is how much square footage they have. So that information is invaluable to those uh, real estate leaders so they can have conversations with the business about, okay, are we expanding our awards um, in Guyana, for lack of a better place, you know, pick on. Uh, so we've got a big, what we call liquid mud plant there. It's one of our huge product lines. We do big deals there. And so, uh, you know, is there more product lines winning work in that area? And we need to expand that site. Well, we know that on the ground and we know that at the highest level with BDs, you know, where are they pursuing work? So it's it's a lot of fun, but I, I, I can't say that it's as challenging as maybe other organizations have it because we've come so far in building those relationships with the business and making sure that, you know, they see us as that vital partner and they don't want to move forward without us. Yeah, I know that's, that's really awesome that you've been able to build such a uh, cohesive relationship between real estate services and the other divisions of the company. Uh, my observation, you know, working with, uh, you know, lots of companies that have complicated uh, real estate needs is that the lack of information flow from the executive level, management level and business units to the real estate team is usually the uh, easiest area to improve, like the lowest hanging fruit, yet not really focused on. And what I wanted to ask you as you're describing this um, is, you know, given your long tenure at Halliburton, was there a time where it was more challenging and you were in a scenario where, okay, how do we get this information? How do we pry this out of people that normally aren't used to interacting with the real estate folks, don't know how to get them the information they need? Uh, it sounds like there was based on, you know, some of the, you know, facial expressions you're making. How did you fix that? Because I think uh, probably the overwhelming amount of real estate directors that will listen to this 
are going to go, oh my gosh, how did Maggie do that? How did her team make this happen? And how do I fix that within my organization so we can get better information, make better decisions? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It has not always been this way. We were order takers. We were walking up to the table and saying, what would you like? And when would you like it? And where would you like it? And let us go. You know, Once you give us all of that information, then we'll go make the deal happen, right? And uh, Quite frankly, we, we now challenge those requests. So how do we do that? The biggest thing on my team um, that I believe that we've done so much for is running uh, real estate like its own business, meaning that we know the numbers. We know how much um, we spend holistically uh, uh, real estate as a uh, P&L line. We know how much the business needs, how much we're impacting the business. So what are their business cases need to look like? And really understanding how to contribute to their bottom line, right? So we have to make it, you know, what's the, you know, with them for them, what's in it for them, right? So we're constantly looking at it going, okay, what, what do we know from the dollars and cents? So I always say, know your numbers, guys. This is, you need to understand exactly what the revenue stream is for your particular country, you need to know the revenue stream for your region, and you need to know what real estate's proportion of that is. So one of the metrics that is used is a real estate cost as percentage of revenue. Now, I really hate that metric, I have to say, because it's a lagging indicator in a real estate world, right? Because revenue definitely is going to... Um, you know, not come or come ahead of time before my site comes online. I can't do a deal as fast necessarily or get out of a site as quickly as when the revenue drops or the revenue comes. But it is a barometer of where we need to be. So making sure we understand what the numbers are is really key. Knowing the business itself, not just knowing the business of real estate, I think helps us have that conversation because you know, if they're putting together a business case for an award for a new site, where are they getting those numbers from? Um, and we want them to be as accurate as possible. And we have our own design and construction team. So if we're going to build something, you know, I don't want them third partying how much it costs to actually build, you know, an actual field camp. I want them to come to us and say, well, how much does it cost us historically? And how much does the lease run? And, you know, all of these unique things that my particular PSL wants to have at this site, you know, what are the standards? So we've built standards with the PSL. So we work with them. So we know, okay, here's the fundamental base shop based on, again, you use demand planning. It's demand planning of what the business needs, not what real estate needs. So I don't want them to come tell me, hey, Maggie, I need a warehouse. I want to know what kind of volume are we going to put through this warehouse? Um, what's, what's the uh, true customer base? What do, you know, what's the flow through on that? And then we use the time and effort that we spent understanding the business about what their footprint should be to help provide them what that information is. But if you don't know your numbers, I don't feel like you have an in. Then you're still an order taker. So really, I kind of keep going back to what is the numbers? What is the business case? What is the business need? And then we help provide them with, well, this is what you need. I know what you want, uh, but based on what you're telling me your flow through is, this is what you really need. And we've done that for every product service line within Halliburton, which is significant. Uh, but that's taken years, I have to say, to, to get there. So it's not an overnight event by any means. Uh, but I would say that probably... I feel pretty comfortable that, you know, that was a, uh, a 
probably the first 10 years of my career was kind of like, uh, um, but then getting a repository to provide the information, collect the information became key because then you could build upon that and then you could actually have those conversations with the business. A great answer. Um, so if, if that's, if that's how things have evolved over the last 10 years, right, putting yourself in a position today where you can be really strategic, know your numbers, you know, not only be, have everyone waiting for you to arrive at the table <laughs> right. and say, okay, Maggie, what do, what do we do here? Uh, where, where do you th see things developing in another 10 years? Um, do you think that there's processes within your, the, you know, real estate services team and the organization as a whole that um, can be further optimized? And I mean, it, it, it is interesting because I, and you, I'm sure you know this from having a number of other friends that lead real estate departments and, you know, talking to different people in industry and all that. Um, from my perspective, Halliburton seems to have one of the most well-run real estate services teams that I've ever seen, like certainly in the top, you know, couple. And that's out of hundreds and hundreds of real estate departments that I've talked to. Um, and I'm sure that the culture of your team to get to where you are today has to be how do we improve? How do we get better? How do we streamline and remove friction and just make things flow, you know, more easily for the team? What are what are some of the things that you're going to be working on or that you're focused on improving so you can get even better results for Halliburton? Absolutely. And 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 that's not to say there's not road bumps continuously throughout, right? I mean, this is an overarching pathway. Um, people change, but you know, a, a lot of it has to do with Halliburton's culture. I mean, our fundamental company value proposition is to collaborate and engineer solutions that maximize asset value for our customers. So it's something that's ingrained to us, right? So for real estate, it's a similar value proposition and it's to collaborate, right? That's the key word. You still have to collaborate. We collaborate with our customers for real estate. Our customers are internal stakeholders, right? So we have to make sure that the dialogue continues um, and that doesn't mean that our customers are not challenging us. I mean, our external customers are challenging us. Our internal customers are challenging us. We don't get a free ride. So, you know, as much as I want to say that they're sitting there and, you know, they're waiting for us to come to the table, they're also saying, what you got, man? Because you better be delivering something high class because at the end of the day, I'm still going to challenge you because I know there's something else there to get. Uh, and, and I think that's just part of Halliburton's culture. Uh, but it really is conversation. It is developing, finding relationships. And one of the things that Halliburton or from real estate that I've done um, and my predecessor has done, uh, which is just phenomenal, is we spend a lot of time on the people component. Um, and we use some tools that are pretty common out in, you know, in any industry, I guess. We use what's called a modified DISC profile. So DISC is around for a lot of people using different things. I call it a modified one because we don't use DISC. Um, we use, uh, or DICS, forgive me. Uh, uh, we use color energies associated with. So understanding people are introverted, extroverted, thinking, feeling, and then what are their driving forces? And if we recognize those things within ourselves, then we train ourselves to pick up on those nuances in conversations with our customers, which I think is critical. And it's critical to minimize conflict and it's um, critical to expedite the conversation and move to alignment and collaboration. Uh, so those are key things that 
uh, real estate does continuously within our own teams and how we are constantly reinforcing that type of training and that type of tool set to recognize those features and others to minimize conflict, doesn't mean they don't have it, uh, to minimize um, long drawn out complications and really get to the meat of, hey, Halliburton needs to deliver products and services to our customers. Real estate is an enabler of doing that. Therefore, we're all on the same team. So how do we help our customer move there? So how do I understand you as a customer, as an individual, to get what you need? Um, so I give you some nice. a little bit of insight yeah. there. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, earlier, you were talking a little bit about how dynamic some of the product service lines are, how demand changes. And, you know, as you were just noting that, you know, the the goal of the real estate department is to accommodate, the, is enable the rest of the business to do what it needs to do. Talk to me about how that influences the structuring of different leases, right? Obviously, Halliburton owns a number of its facilities. I'm assuming that those facilities are thought of as very long-term strategic sites. And the stuff that's more variable uh, is, is likely leased. You can, of course, confirm that. Um, but I, I'd love to understand, how are, how are you thinking about that? Are, you, are there a lot of termination options? Are there shorter term agreements? How do you balance um, you know, getting tenant improvement capital with the you know, duration of leases? And as you're thinking through going through your you know, very comprehensive process of moving forward on a facility, what are you thinking about to structure the real estate transaction most optimally? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and for Halliburton, you know, capital is highly intensive and we use that for rolling stock. Um, and so fighting for build capital becomes, uh, you know, is really what we consider non-revenue producing assets. We, we facilitate the revenue, but it in itself does not generate revenue, right? So capital is tight. Capital needs to be efficiently spent. And so whether or not we're going to improve, uh, whether we're going to build it ourselves, we're going to lease those types of things, to your point, is a constant dialogue. So each, again, the, the strategies have to do with where the customer base, where's the well sites. Those are all huge components that are in there. And we've our philosophy has changed over the years. Um, specifically in North America, we used to be a large um multi-PSL field camp, and we would call them our super camps. And so those were strategically located across uh, the U.S., and we put everything there. So these could be 30 to 70 acre sites, right, uh, with multiple buildings and shops and all of those things to be able to support all of those various PSLs. And that was our model for a lot of time, and we owned a lot of that. We owned almost all of it. Um, in this last downturn, we pretty much exited all of our super camps and we went for a more nimble uh, type of uh, strategy going forward. So one, let's downsize and see where we strategically can locate and commingle those things. So keep those where we can. But now it is more about anything that's new to the portfolio is truly challenged on can you execute work from an existing location or you know, do you truly need a new site? Uh, North America still has larger sites, but they are fewer than before. They are still more multi-PSL um, 
PSL. And so when we build or we look for build outs, we're constantly looking for, again, that internal working of how many different PSLs can use this space. So making it uh, multi-purposed. So um, again, shop space may be shared, or even if it's not currently shared, it's designed so that if one PSL grows or shrinks or another one comes in, you can utilize that same space. Um, and that's kind of, I'll call it North America, US, Canada. The Eastern Hemisphere has traditionally been very different. It, it is very few owned sites, as you mentioned. A lot of the countries that we're in, it's not advantageous or really uh, the right thing for us to own property. Even though some of those sites have been in our portfolio for quite a long time, um, we've probably leased the land and done a build out on them. But the Eastern Hemisphere's philosophy is more longer term contract based. So again, the business um, and I say when I say longer term in oil field services language, that could be like five years. Right. That's a long term contract. Uh, so you can see how that could be, uh, you know, balanced with a short term lease <laughs> in that. So we're not talking 15, 20 year leases in those things. We are talking about, um, you know, three to five year leases. Now, we do build in, to your point, lots of flexibility. That is part of our negotiations. We want either, if we go for longer term leases, then we have to have exit clauses. Or if we go for shorter term leases, we have to have renewal options. Um, so those are strategic components that we're working with inside of those deals. Um, and then leveraging again that against the contract award base, which is again why it's so critical for us to understand the business. So, you know, is it one contract this site is supporting? Is it multiple plus customers that um, we're supporting in this? Um, do we see this as a long-term play? You know, all of those conversations build into how we negotiate. And it's changed, to your point, over the years, it definitely has changed. North America used to be hey, more churn, so you, you didn't have a consistent customer base. Um, it was more call-out work, and so the site remained kind of consistent, and the work came and went. Now, we do have churn in our portfolio, uh, and it's, it's so there's a lot of, and I say a lot, probably we have about a 15% churn in our portfolio, um, leases expiring and renewing. And when we renew, we are still looking at, do we renew for this site or do we renew somewhere close by where um, we've gotten efficient in the startup piece um, so that we're not spending all that money and capital trying to you know, reset for where we're going. Um, so all of those things come into play for us, but it, it's still a constant dialogue to your point with the customer to know what's going in those deals. But Lease renewals are built in, um, terminate, early termination options are built in. We know that we probably pay a little bit more for those, but we need that flexibility um, to be able to manage the portfolio and the, the just the cycle time in oil and gas. Yeah, <clears throat> that makes great sense. Another great explanation. Um, as you're talking through some of the uh, unique ways that you structure these deals to maximize flexibility, one of the things that um, strikes me, and and I, I see this a lot with publicly traded companies, is how much time do you spend thinking about the accounting implication of how you structure some of these leases, right? 
Um, you know, the accounting laws, you know, changed a couple of years back, um, you know, changed in different years, depending on what, how big of a company and whether you're public and all that. Um, but now it's a, it's a conversation we're having a lot with the different companies that we interact with. And, you know, the idea of doing a 10 year lease with a rate to terminate at year five, you know, you can terminate if you don't like the rent in year six, assuming that the termination option isn't very expensive. But the way that that's reported from a lease accounting standpoint is very, very different than just signing a five-year lease. Uh, and I, I'm curious how you all think about it and and, um, and your perspective on how do you balance uh, paying attention to accounting, but also still put the needs of the business first? Yeah, no, a great question and, and one that you kind of hit a niche on my area. So uh, again, a little bit of background on me. So i consider myself an accountant by first trade. So I am, uh, I have my undergrad in accounting. And then um, within the last five years, I went back and got my master's in finance. And so the answer to that is why, for exactly what you're talking about. So <laughs> I always say that I am not Halliburton's accountant, but I am an accountant. And uh, when I go back to say knowing your numbers, um, really, I feel like in Halliburton real estate, we were some of the first people to understand what the lease impacts, the change in lease accounting rules was going to do. And we were reporting that in real estate, the impacts to the balance sheet um, for probably three years prior to the changes in the accounting rules. Uh, we have got great, uh, like I said, finance and accounting resources here and our chief uh, information chief accounting officer, sorry, uh, was very open to allowing us to make sure that we were engaged in that conversation and the tools that were going to be used to report those going forward. So the good news is um, we, we in real estate felt like it was our responsibility to understand those impacts um, to the balance sheet and to um, how that how that lease was going to show up as an operating cost to the business. And so it's in our model. It has always been in our model um, kind of three years prior to the changes. So it is important, you know, how you look at that. And we use, I, I don't know if this one is common knowledge or this is a Halliburton term. I apologize for this one. You know, we, we have what's called an economic penalty model, which is, you know, historically, whether or not you record on the balance sheet the extension of the lease because of your intent, right? So yes, we have a five-year deal, but we really intend to be there for 10 years and we have renewal options available that allow us to report that. Now that does two things, right? Because it increases our right of use asset for that 10-year term if we decide to do that. But it also could minimize the operating annual operating cost because we've taken it out for 10 years versus five. And of course, any capital expenditures that we made to improve that now can depreciate over that 10 year versus five year term. So it's part of our model and, and it, it is uh, embedded and it, it has to be looked at. So um, each one of those things like you mentioned is, is kind of a, a trigger, a tickler in our kind of analysis to say, do we consider this? And, and I feel like, you know, our accountants obviously oversee us. They they put their eyes on it. That's part of our process. But from a real estate perspective, my team, I hold them accountable for making those analyses as well. So that's when I say know your numbers, you know, 
come let us help you look at that because we're going to help your finance team know what that is even going into it. Yeah, it's really smart. And it, it seems like you all have managed to find the right balance of uh, paying attention to lease accounting, understanding its impact on the financial statements, but at the same time, balancing that awareness with also not letting these uh, arbitrary accounting laws dictate your strategy. And, you know, so, sometimes we, we see companies that will uh, pass up on a, something that would really be optimal for the business because it might not look as favorable on the, on the accounting statements. And obviously, when you're dealing with the scale of Halliburton and Halliburton-sized companies with, you know, hundreds or thousands of sites, it's not as if a, uh, you know, financial analyst giving some, you know, buy, hold or sell rating on a stock or something can go through and do site-level due diligence. But at the same time, I think that the public markets are so smart and generally do so much diligence in the companies that they're reviewing or investing in that at the end of the day, just making the right business decision versus trying to uh, optimize accounting very specifically, uh, is it's almost always better to just make the right business decision, right? And the accounting metrics that uh, everyone's optimizing and you know aware of when they're making real estate decisions are meant to... Uh, help give a, an accurate and you know healthy reading of of how our company's real estate is set up, uh, and of course when you know people made these law these rules and all that, I'm sure that they knew there'd be optimization around it. But you know optimization uh, while still putting the business's needs first is always, or I should say, almost always the. Uh, correct strategy. And it's great to hear that that's what you all are doing. No yeah, surprise. It, it's not It's not an accounting decision from a, you know, should you do this for Halliburton, right? It, it's a component that's considered. And I mean, like I said, we definitely, you know, our finance and accounting group reviews every one of the leases and make sure. But it's our job to make sure they understand where, where that, you know, decision point, tipping point may be. Um, but usually I'll, I'll say that it's the real estate people advising finance and accounting that we think that this is the right thing and validate that we've got the right research. And you know, we've got a great research uh, component in our finance organization that allows us to leverage some additional skill sets. So if we want to come up with a creative deal sort, you know, we, we're going to them going, OK, well, what do the county rules say about this? And we try to give them some scenarios about what the deal might look like and then tell us, can we do it within the accounting um, you know, standards. So it's kind of fun. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun when you have such mastery of the normal real estate functions and you can start layering the other more challenging pieces on top. Uh, we have a, a saying at our company, uh, you know, be so good at the basics that it's cutting edge. Yeah, and we think yeah. that there's, there's a lot of businesses that are so focused on these nuanced uh, areas of optimization that they forget the core thing that they do. Uh, and if, if you're just, you know, the best at the few things that matter the most, you probably have an amazing company if you can just do those couple of things. But I think that real estate, uh, particularly portfolio management and uh, strategy of a large portfolio and all that, I think it becomes much more fun when you've created the space and resources and time to tackle the, you know, day-to-day -day items of the real estate portfolio really well and then to be able to layer on these very strategic initiatives on top of it. But for a ton of companies that, for example, can't get the information that they need from their business units to tell them 
uh, and collaborate on what the real estate team should do, those people are probably better off focusing on how do you get better communication to the real estate team than optimizing lease accounting. But once you've optimized everything else, there's these areas that you can reach for that are really impactful, particularly in aggregate, right? You know, companies that are uh, optimizing lease accounting are also optimizing generally a lot of other things that all collectively have a very big impact to the bottom line and the strategy and flexibility and all that. So uh, very cool to hear. I would love, Maggie, for you to tell us about one of the most challenging or complicated real estate transactions that you've worked on. Uh, it's probably hard for you to pick given all the sites and everything that you've seen uh, you know, over your career. But if you can pick one of the most crazy or interesting, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, actually, um, you kind of did a great lead in for me on that one because it, it we we did have a big deal uh, just uh, during the COVID, during the downturn. Uh, one of the challenges that was given to me when I took over as vice president about five years ago was to we needed to get our balance sheet uh, under control. And we had about three billion dollars worth of real estate assets on the books. So again, $3 billion of non-revenue generating assets. Um, and so it, it, it was a multi-year uh, event, right? That was my whole team's focus is, okay, how do we reduce this? Well, obviously you can cut your portfolio, sell it off, get out of your leases and everything, and that's one way, but you can only use so much of that, right? Uh, so it was a phenomenal experience. It was a collaborative team event. Um, it was tax, treasury, finance, um, uh, brokers, you know, um, risk, uh, risk um, management, all of our teams coming together. And to your point saying, okay, we've cut the portfolio, we've taken out all of the dead weight. Um, now we still have to figure out a way to reduce our net book value and simultaneously reduce um, our ongoing operating costs, right? So everybody put their creative um, caps on. And so, you know, we engaged with a, a, a variety of different consulting groups. In fact, in fact this core team, like I said, that was um, treasury, tax, um, finance, accounting, risk management, legal, of course. Um, we all came together and we interviewed different consulting firms to help us what are our options? What else could we do? Because, you know, what kind of creative deal could we put together? And uh, we ended up with a consulting partner that actually had this kind of idea that was, you know, probably not well um, known. And I, and I don't know how many deals like this have been done. But ultimately, what we did is we took the majority of our own portfolio in the U.S., so around 45 properties, to your point, key properties, we knew we were going to keep them. There's um, those, These are long-term investments. We had, um, I mean, my team and I were personally on calls every week with every vice president in the area going, okay, looking at your strategy, looking at where your business is going, you know, you know, if, if, if something happened tomorrow, where would you operate from? You know, to, to call back that exact list. So we ended up with 45 properties. And we ended up with a uh, JV agreement. So where we, what we did is we, Treasury brought in an investor. We worked with them. They were a minority investor. 
Um, so from a dollars and cents standpoint, they were looking for a return, but of the value of the portfolio of those 45 properties, they were the majority. But the deal required from an accounting perspective, how do we pull these off the balance sheet? So we created JV, we were the majority dollar value, but we were the minority controlling entity. And that was one of the big things is, okay, so now Halliburton is giving up control of the decision-making of the JV partnership. Um, put them into, it's, you know, it, it's similar to a sale lease back, but it's not that direct, right? Um, so the JV owned all the properties, pulled everything off of the balance sheet, um, right-sized the market value of those properties, set up um, 10 to 15 year, year lease terms for those with um, the right level of renewal components, a mechanism to be able to add or subtract properties at our um, discretion or based on business need, um, although they are the decision making. So there are certain criteria that we have to, you know, obviously hit in order for them to feel comfortable and have the majority decision making control over it. Um, and then what accounted to is the way that the rents were paid to the JV, we ended up paying around 30% of the market value. That in itself was a huge win. That pulled about six to $800,000 off of the balance sheet um, and reduced our overall ongoing operating cost by about 70% and still maintain day-to-day -day operational control. So we still manage those sites to ensure that they met the business needs. Um, but the deal itself, it took, uh, we, we thought the deal, we were going to do that fast, right? Everybody thinks they're going to do that fast. Uh, but the complexities of it were, you know, fun, but, you know, took a little bit longer to, to get everybody on board. It took us probably about 18 months to put that deal together, but a huge win. Talk about collaboration. You know, the business had to be, you know, we led, real estate led the conversations with the business, but partnerships with, you know, tax, treasury, finance, risk, legal, HSC, all of those folks, and finding the right business partner um, to enter into that JV with us was critical, right? We had to have somebody that we could have these conversations about um, understanding how oil and gas works, how do we expand, how do we, you know, how do we modify our facilities for these different product service lines and not have to be um, bombarded in the day-to-day -day pieces when we needed to make changes. So that was a really cool uh, deal that I was able to participate in. And I mean, obviously, so many members of my team contributed to that uh, across uh, so many disciplines uh, as well. But that was a pretty exciting deal. Yeah, that definitely does not disappoint in terms of a really complicated, really challenging uh, transaction. So congrats for making that happen. That's uh, I'm sure was a, a big moment and relief getting it done after 18 months of hard work from so yes. many people in the organization. Yes. You know, one of, one of the things that strikes me as you talk through that example, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, people that are in real estate roles that um, are not nece necessarily career, uh, you know, heads of real estate or corporate directors of real estate, right? They were 
um, you know, on business operations and then they get pulled into now being in charge of real estate. Maybe they're a year or two or three years into the job. And granted, it's pretty rare that people like that are managing portfolios of real estate like Halliburton's, right? Uh, at least I, I would hope so right. because that would be a really stressful and, and challenging life more so than, you know, what you have already, even with all of your great experience doing this. But for for those types of people, do you have any recommendations on how they can increase their rate of learning? I mean, you you clearly know so much and you've seen it all, right? I mean, obviously not not to make it sound like it, your your job is easy or something but it's a heck of a lot easier now than i'm sure it was you know right when you took the job so if you're if you're a new director of real estate and maybe you're managing a portfolio that's you know 50 or 100 domestic only locations and they're half office and half you know warehousing logistics or something like that what would you be focused on to uh, up your game and increase your experience level, make the team work better together, and ultimately just perform really well in your role? Yeah, um, it's a, another great question. And I, I would say it's twofold, um, transferable skills and technical skills. Um, and, and we've already talked a lot about what I'll consider the transferable skills. I cannot stress communication, uh, understanding yourself, understanding your, your team, um, and, and spending time and effort on how to help your team improve those skill sets. So if, if you don't have them or you're not a master of them or you think your team can need them, I think I, my team can always use it. I guess we never stop working on those things. We can never be masters of those in my mind. So that particular skill, what I'll call transferable or soft skills, highly recommend that that's always something that you're focusing on and not as one-time events, but as a continuous part of what you do every day. On the technical side, though, I mean, that's really a lot of fun as well, because I would say leverage your network, um, leverage your brokers, leverage your architects, um, industry organizations, make sure that you're networking with your peers. I mean, that that to me is a lot of, you know, learning vicariously. Don't make the mistakes yourselves, you know, learn from the mistakes that your peers and the folks, your colleagues and stuff have already done. Learn from them. I mean, I, I mean, we, we use a lot of different brokers. We have a, a great relationship with um, many of them. They are great resources, right? They know markets. Um, they can tell you, I mean, I can't be a expert across 90 countries. Uh, in fact, I'm an expert in none in my mind, right? That's that's why I have partnerships with brokers. That's why I need them. And they are a plethora of information to leverage what's going on with all of their, their customers and their clients. Um, you know, networking with peers, you know, an organization, an industry organizations, um, a lot of my team members and I belong to Cornet Global, another great organization to network. Um, again, things that problems that you're going to face, they've probably already faced. They've probably had ideas and ways to challenge it. Podcasts like you guys have, listening to, uh, you know, those types of things that your quick listens, things you can put on in the car, on your commute, those are fabulous ways to get tidbits. In fact, that's, uh, you know, my best way in the morning is I put on an audio of some sort, and that's what motivates me on the way in. Uh, and then my commute on the way home is usually something much lighthearted, uh, you know, so I don't have to think about it anymore. But those use those moments of time to 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 up your game and your on your technical skills is where I would go. Smart. 
and thanks for the the plug for the podcast. Absolutely. Glad, glad, <laughs> glad to know you, you're enjoying it. Uh, one of the things that, that you hit on is, you know, talking about all of the different brokers that you work with across, you know, these 90 countries. Uh, and I, I hear you when you say like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not a market expert, right? I mean, I, I would imagine that you probably are, that you're just being humble, right? But I know what you mean when you say that, right? What, what, what I really see you as uh, is a, a great leader and a master of process, right? You know how to take all the information, all the variables from all these different, you know, from the business units, from the market, from the brokers, from the architects, and pull all of that together into a process that you know is going to yield the best results. And I think that uh, a lot of people almost become obsessively focused on the market, right? Like, okay, well, what's that comp? What's this comp? Not recognizing that all, all of these things are rear view looking, right? And how do you make the, how do you create the best outcome for your specific company, for your specific need in that specific moment? And when you're focused on that and managing a process that you know has been proven to yield great results, you can have confidence in that process. Not to say that, you know, local information isn't important because of course it is. I mean, particularly when you're, you know, jumping from the Middle East to Canada to South America. I mean, there's a lot of variance in uh, kind of norms and customs and rents and lease structures and all that. You need to have awareness of that. Um, so anyways, jumping back to that first question there, what, what do you use brokers for? Um, is it just market information? Is it, um, you know, help on negotiating transactions? I mean, bro people use brokers for different reasons and I'd love to hear how you leverage them to, you know, help your team. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, and it changes based on the location, right? I mean, for sure. Um, in the U.S., we pro our team is really small. So uh, even though we have the larger largest pro portfolio, we have dedicated resources in what in our group called the acquisition and disposals team, right? Lease management. They manage the process. To your point, they manage the expert expectations with the customer. Um, they are managing multiple deals at one time, just kind of the flow, right? To making sure everything's flowing. But we use brokers to identify the properties. We use brokers to negotiate the deals. Um, you know, we partner with them. A lot of times the ones in the U.S. sit in our offices and our customers don't even know that they're not Halliburton. Um, in fact, we prefer it that way. Uh, now, in other countries, that's not the case because the churn is not there. We don't necessarily have as many deals. And so then we're using a broker, usually from an affiliate firm that we trust. You know, obviously, that's a big case uh, for us. And we're getting both market information and we might have them do the deal for us. It just depends on the complexities of the deal itself. Uh, if it's a, you know, a small warehouse, then you know, probably we'll just let them do it. If it's a more complicated, uh, you know, if it's a technology center, manufacturing center or something else that's a little bit uh, more complicated, a sale, um, excuse me, a build a suit of some sort where we really have to leverage them and we've got to get in our design and construction group because there's very specific BSL design uh, components. Those, those things we would probably partner with that broker with um, or maybe we'll do the deal itself. So we, we use them for both. Um, like I said, 
it really just depends, but they are a partner um, to us, not just somebody that we go buy the resource, uh, research information from, I should say. That's great. Yeah, the broker relationships that seem to be the most beneficial uh, and that are the best at working together are ones where the brokers have an opportunity to be treated like a partner, to be embedded in the business, actually understand the business. I mean, I think one of the consistent themes of our conversation has been that you need to understand the business and how the business strategy impacts real estate strategy. And I think that's the biggest point of failure for most brokers is that they're brought in for one project or a few projects. And granted, there are some small companies where they might have one corporate headquarters or two or three locations, and they don't take the time to really understand the business. And if you understand the business and the complexity, then you're in a position to give much better advice. Uh, and I think you're just you're you're more of a stakeholder than if you're just, hey, what are market rents? Send in this proposal. Here are the terms versus being able to have a, a seat at the table. So um, that's awesome to hear. So you were talking earlier just briefly about you have 1.8 million square feet of office space amongst this 30 million square foot portfolio. I would imagine the rents on the office space are quite a bit higher than these, you know, oil field service type of properties and all that, even though it's only, you know, call it 5% ish of your, you know, total portfolio. I would imagine that it accounts for a much higher percentage of the overall cost. How are you thinking about the company's usage of office space in this post-COVID, you know, some companies working from home type of world? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great one. And it's a plethora of conversations and a variety, right? Uh, so let me give you some examples about what we're doing at our main campus here in Houston, uh, which is where I'm at today. So this particular campus actually houses, is built was built for about 6,000 employees. It's got about 20 buildings on it, four or five office um, uh, buildings itself. So we decided, uh, we, 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 well, it's two things, I guess. During the downturn and COVID, when we were deciding what our true footprint needed to, to look like, we had to look at office space specifically. And I, I wish I could say that we were looking at it from the standpoint of we were so forward thinking that we knew that remote working was going to be here to stay and it was a, a, a trend that was just going to, to be there at, at all times. And, and it wasn't, it was really survival mode, really. It was just how do we reduce our cost when we have people working remotely? So Halliburton did a little bit different twist than most of my customers did, quite frankly, in the U.S., if I look at the oil field services and oil and gas customers, they did not downsize their office footprint necessarily, but Halliburton did. Um, around the globe, we actually, that was one of our prime targets of minimizing our total footprint was the office footprint itself. And at the main campus, that meant mothballing two what we considered relatively new um, buildings that housed about 1,200 people. And so we took that time and we restacked the entire campus during COVID. So nobody was here. So we boxed everything up. We put everything in, a, in a conference rooms and shut down two buildings and then said, okay, when and if we ever come back, we're coming back to different spaces and what a perfect time to do it because we, you know, logistically, it was easier to do. 
And so we had a conversation and we partnered obviously with HR uh, and we said, okay, what are the roles that need to come back and what are you thinking? And I don't know how or why it came up uh, the way it did, uh, but we grouped people into three categories. At our North Belt campus, we do have manufacturing and technology folks. So we were never 100% shut down. We had critical workforce on campus every day throughout COVID. So we knew that there was a group of people that had to be on campus no matter what, and some type of office as well. So those were the full-time folks that were on campus. And then HR worked with the business on the job capsules and said, okay, what are the job titles and pieces that would be full-time remote? And what are the job capsules, titles, and roles that would be hybrid? And based on that information, they, they, we collaborated together on those numbers and we reprogrammed the campus. So our PSLs were programmed at 65% of their headcount and our support functions were programmed at 35% of their headcounts. So when they came back, if you had 100 people and you were a product line, you had 65 spaces. And if you were a support function and you had 10 people, you had four spaces. And knowing that, that was what we're gonna do. And so we did that for the North Belt campus. And then there was a lot of conversation, well, how do you manage through that, okay? If I bring all my people in, on one day a week or something like that, how do we do it? And we talked through a lot of different schedules. Do we do, you know, one week on, one week off? Do we have Tuesdays alternating this? Do we have desk sharing? All of those things. And it ended up we had all of it. Every department had something, right? So as a company, we didn't mandate a particular schedule. We came up with kind of a guiding principle and said that we anticipate people that are in this hybrid group to be on campus about 10 days a month, which equated to two to three days a week, right? But of course the, the scheduling itself was dependent on the needs of the company or that particular, particular, forgive me, department or PSL. And we've been managing at that level since then. Um, so that's the kind of the Halliburton corporate office campus. And we've been managing that since uh, COVID. We still report kind of how folks are doing, like what is the utilization of those three categories um, and how does that play on, do people need more space, but they're managing. Uh, when I get outside of this main campus at the rest of the office space, it's very similar. Again, we downgraded um, the amount of space in all of our region offices, countries, all of those things. We sent them to the field camps where there was office space. And then we did more open spacing, right? So anything that we had as dedicated office became more office uh, open plan. Uh, we had a lot of open plan prior to uh, the Eastern Hemisphere is definitely way ahead of, uh, I could say the Western Hemisphere on that part. Okay, Maggie. So just a couple more questions here before we wrap up. Uh, these are questions that we ask to everyone that we have on the show. Uh, I'd love to hear what the most challenging part of your job is? Hmm. Um, people. People are always the most challenging part. The deal's <laughs> yeah. easy, right? I mean, you execute the deal. Um, personalities uh, and making sure that you're giving 110% to your customer base. Uh, you know, 
I go back to that knowing yourself, communication styles, making sure you're understood, making sure you're hearing what your customer is looking for and collaborating get together. That is probably the biggest challenge and why we spend so much time on it. Got it. Yeah, uh, not surprised by that answer given our conversation today. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I think that that is probably the consistent answer for just about anyone you could ask in any role right what's the most challenging part of your job it's it's almost always the people how do you get people to work well together it's the most rewarding part of the job i have to say but it is also the most challenging because you want everybody to feel like they are valued and contributing and that's something we strive for every single day great okay last question before a quick lightning round uh what do you think makes a great director of real estate Well, I feel like a broken record, though, because I keep saying the same thing. Uh, (laughs) Know your numbers. All right. So know your business, know your numbers and spend time with your people. Right. So those are the things I think give you an edge in real estate because you can know the transactions. You can leverage your partners. You can get all the technical skills possible. But your edge, I think, in the real estate world is understanding your numbers and then making sure that you're taking care of your people and collaborating with them. Okay, great. Uh, Okay, quick lightning round before we wrap up. Uh, Just have four or five quick questions for you. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So I'll go with three quick ones, right? When you're managing up, three bullet points, no more. Don't give them anything more than that. The second one, it's not personal, meaning, and I don't mean that in a contrite way. Um, I mean that in that normally when there's conflict, there's normally something else going on beyond the conversation right here. So don't take that personal. So that was, that's my second one. And the last one would be give time to people. Make sure that you're, when you're having a conversation, make sure you have enough time with people. What inspired you to get into corporate real estate? Okay, now that's an easy one. So I had a fabulous mentor, a gentleman named Tommy Jamail. He was the previous vice president for Halliburton, and I worked for him for 18 of my 23 years now at Halliburton. And I would have followed him. If he didn't retire, I would have followed him around the globe. Uh, So he was one of these individuals that the sky was the limit. He was my biggest champion. Uh, He always believed in you know, in me and allowed me to be curious and give me the leeway to, to learn new things. What's the most memorable moment of your career so far? Yeah. All right. So, um, craziest moment in my career, uh, pre Halliburton, uh, I worked for a company called universal computer systems. And let me tell you what this was. They were a small, uh, privately owned computer-based software company that provided, Um, software to car dealerships like Ford and Chevrolet and um, dealerships and and, and GM and all of those. And so I was an accounts payable manager actually at the time, accounts payable supervisor. The incident is around a, it's called a GM master price tape. It was a tape that has all the parts pricing on it. And as the accounts payable supervisor, my job was to make sure the payment for that particular master copy got out every month. And it wasn't an invoice and it was a hundred dollars a month payment. 
And I quietly, I was 23 years old and I didn't know what a GM master price tape was or the significance of it. But basically when you work for a software company, what it means is that the price differential for any part that GM makes that is sold at a different price than what's on that master price tape, your company is responsible for. So it's a three prong approach. First, the payment has to be made $100. Second, you get the delivery of the master tape. Your computer department at the time is supposed to make copies. So 100 plus copies of the tape and send it out to every dealership that is available. And your shipping and receiving department is supposed to send out 100 copies of said tape every month, right? So what happened? The tape didn't, the, the payment didn't get made. First foul. Nobody caught that they didn't get the master one and nobody made 100 copies. Second foul. The third one is the shipping and receiving department didn't receive the 100 copies to ship out every, uh, every that month, right? So third foul. So three points of failure, in which case, hey, that is a significant burden. All right. No problem. But in order for me to understand, or for us, the three of us who were responsible for those points of failure, again, remember, accounts payable supervisor, 23 years old, I'm just paying bills, but there's no bill to pay. It's just a payment. Okay, $100. What's the big deal? I paid the $100 when they let me know. So my company, what they did is they handed out, they brought all of the managers in the company. So let's just say 40 people in this company together. And the CEO gets up there and says he's ex-military and he has three grenades in his hands. And he says, hey, I just want to give you guys an analogy. And that, you know, a grenade is a pretty safe thing as long as the pin's in it. Nothing happens. It can sit there. Everything's good. But the minute the pin is removed, then you have potential catastrophe. And this GM Master Price tape incident could have been a catastrophe. Our company could have been uh, liable for millions of dollars because all the price differential for anything that was sold in that period when they didn't have a copy of their master price tape would have been our responsibility. So each one of us was required from that point on to have said grenade on desk in front of us at all points in time. Now you talk about a reminder of a couple different things, right? One, why is your job important? Why is every payment you make important to the company? What's the big picture here? Two, <laughs> um, curiosity, right? I, I better understand why or what contributes. What, what is the business that I'm in? What does my company do and why is it important? So that curiosity to understand the business and three, resilience, right? Because um, that's a pretty amazing thing to happen and a pretty kind of, oh my gosh, um, can I survive this as a career component in my life? Uh, and I kind of took it as that in stride that said, hey, I'm young, naive, I didn't understand, lesson learned. I will not, <laughs> this will not happen again, right? So I'm going to be curious, I'm going to understand my business, and I'm going to make sure that I can contribute to the team and to the company in a positive way going forward. And I didn't let that grenade sitting on my desk be the end of me. 
So it has, you know, carried me through so many times. But uh, an interesting, uh, maybe not politically correct and nowadays, but uh, I survived. So is this a real grenade? A real like if grenade. you, I mean, obviously not loaded. Okay. It didn't have gunpowder <laughs> in it or anything. Uh, but it was the you know the actual shot. Yeah. As, as you're talking through the story, I'm thinking this is crazy. Who has a live grenade in an office, right? But okay, it makes me feel better that it wasn't loaded. Uh, <laughs> didn't have gunpowder, but it, if you could take it home, and if you knew what to do with it, you could. Yeah, still very scary. Uh, and what a what a. Uh, like interesting inflection point in your early days of your career. And I'm sure that you think about that often. I mean, across all the people on your real estate team, I'm sure you have some younger, newer to the industry or newer even to the working world type of people and being able to have that kind of empathy of, hey, this is why it matters. This is why it's so important. This is really serious, but we also trust you to do a great job. Uh, Having that type of attitude, I think, is really powerful as a leader and manager uh, it's clear that you're a very high empathy, high understanding, high relatability type of person. And I think that is probably some of the magic of why Halliburton operates its real estate so effectively. Thank you. I hope so. Well, Maggie, that is it. Thanks so much for coming on the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. I can't wait for this episode to air, everyone to learn all of the different things that you've talked about, how Halliburton manages its real estate. Uh, and all of the unique insights you shared. So thank you very much for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tucker. It's been a lot of fun.